You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Now, um, we are, yeah, we're t- continuing with our theme on Genesis, but that was a reading from the New Testament and the words of Jesus. And I hope it will make sense to you by the time uh, we finish uh, uh, why we've read from Jesus and not from the story that we're going to be talking about. The two fit together. But first of all, you've been sat there for a long time and not said anything. I'd like you, if you're bold enough, you can do this in your own head if you want, uh, I'd like you to turn to people around you, behind you, say hi to somebody and discuss with them what you know about this painting. This is a famous painting, actually, and it's in the Tate Gallery. So don't tell me, tell someone next to you. Impress them with your knowledge. But what's it about and why was it painted? Okay, we move on. Now, I, I am I'm absolutely convinced there's loads of feedback about this. We haven't got uh, time to take it, but you would have learned things uh, uh, amongst yourselves about it. Let me tell you some things about it. It was painted by a man called George Frederick Watts in 1886. And uh, the extraordinary thing about this picture is it's called Hope. Hope is actually the woman who sat on the globe. That's her name, but the picture is called Hope. George Frederick Watts painted a second version of this picture in the same year. Shortly after, his adopted daughter, his adopted daughter's daughter, who was a few months old, died. And when he painted his second version of the picture, which is the one that hangs in the tape permanently, he gave it to the tape. You can go see it. It's a remarkable painting. It's even bleaker than this one, which is in a private collection. It looks exactly the same, except for the fact that the light behind the globe, which comes from a star, a distant star that's not in the picture, but that light... That illumination in the picture has been removed altogether. So dark is the second version of this painting, equally this first version, where hope sits on a globe, forlorn, broken, dressed in rags, playing on a lyre. And if you take a close-up of it, you'll see that the lyre's only got one string still unbroken. She's blindfolded. She bends down. She's crestfallen. So broken is this picture that when it was released and uh, then the second version came to London, 
the critics unanimously said the same thing. This isn't a picture, a painting of hope. This is a painting of despair. It's called the wrong thing. This is despair. This woman is in despair. But what they all missed is this. That Watts called it hope. And he called it hope even after the loss of his granddaughter. Because hope still plays. On a one broken string, she still chooses to play. Hope is a short word, four letters. But it's a big concept. Like lots of the others, actually. Uh, for instance, progress. If you talk to Donald Trump and ask him about progress, he'd tell you lots about it. If you talk to Greta Thunberg and ask her about progress, she'd tell you lots about it. But these two people mean entirely different things from one short word. Peace is another word like that. Love is another word like that. We think they're short words, tiny words, small words, but actually they're giant concepts that are always seeking definition and content. It's almost like they're empty buckets, some wait, awaiting someone to fill them. So when we talk about hope, what are we talking about? Are we talking about turning a blind eye to reality and just singing some hymns because it'll all work out? Or is our definition of hope deeper? Hope that hangs on, that has audacity when others would give up. Now that phrase, audacity, the audacity of hope, is one that Barack Obama made uh, the theme of a great speech that he gave. It's absolutely brilliant. You should watch it. I'm, sh I'm sure it's still on YouTube. In 2004, long before he became the president um, of the United States, he was a, a lawyer and then, you know, a community organizer. That's what, it, what he basically did. He did kind of stuff that Oasis does in Waterloo in Chicago, organizing stuff going on. And then he became a congressman. And as a congressman, Democratic congressman, he was asked unbelievably, to speak at the uh, uh, 2004 uh, Democratic Convention. And what had happened to him earlier was that the church that he went to in Chicago, whose minister is a guy called Jeremiah Wright, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright, who is a brilliant preacher. Uh, but uh, Barak had turned up one morning and he'd sat in the pews whilst Jeremiah Wright talked about this painting and these are the words because um, because um, Barack Obama records them in himself in his memoir Barack Obama recounts Jeremiah's sermon that's that morning and these words with her clothes in rags her body scarred and bruised and bleeding a harp all but destroyed and with only one string left she dares to hope. She has the audacity to make music on the one string she has left. Obama writes that it was that paragraph, 
that speech, that sermon, that moment in front of God that transformed his whole life. And he realized that his hope must be about audacity to remain when everything's running against you. And so it was that in 2004, in recognition of the moment that changed his life, it, which, it was a sermon preached in 1990, he stood up and he gave that speech, the audacity of hope. And when he was elected as president, he wrote a book, or around the same time, wrote his famous book, The Audacity of Hope. It became the theme of everything he did. We will move forward. He said in his election speech, we will cling to a politics of hope, not cynicism. We won't give up. We won't allow ourselves to fall into bickering about other people, other groups. And nor will we end up in a position where we give up on ourselves and always bemoan our lot. The audacity of hope, the politics of hope politics of Jesus so cowboys and Indians I grew up on cowboys and Indians films when I was a kid you could go to Saturday morning pictures who's old enough here to remember Saturday morning pictures I can see you all nodding and keeping your hands down because you don't want it to be known exactly how old you are and um, anyway, Cowboys and Indians. And of course, we're all familiar with cowboy, the theme of Cowboys and Indians. There's still, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the films and John Wayne made his career on it and Clint Eastwood and all the rest of it. Cowboys and Indians. Here's the thing, though. We've swallowed entirely the wrong rhetoric. Because the rhetoric was the good cowboys and the bad Indians, you know, that there, there are some good cowboys and they're running away and having to kill a few Indians who are chasing after them to, to barber them. But the reality is that the narrative we learn in the white west was entirely the wrong one. The cowboys weren't the good guys. The native Indians, the native population were the people who had their land stolen from them, taken from them, and forced to live on the worst land there was going, reservations as they were called. Until, of course, I don't know if you know this, until, of course, people discovered that these rocky outcrops that you couldn't grow anything on um, had lots of oil underneath. And then they were moved again. The indigenous peoples of the United States. I learned most about this. I was going to bring to sh this to show you this morning, and then I thought I shouldn't. Um, Cornelia and I were talking about family heirlooms, do you know? Like... You know, when we're not here, you know, you know, your kids come around and chuck everything out and they take it down the dump, you know, because they don't, you know. And, and we, you know, what do we want them not to take down the dump? And, um, and one of the things, I was going to bring it here, then Cornelia was scared that I'd drop it and smash it, which is probably true. Um, some years ago, uh, perhaps 20 years ago, but perhaps more than that, I can't remember, I was asked by the Navajo tribe the Navajo, the uh, uh, Cheyenne, the Sioux, the Navajo tribe to go and spend a week with them. So I went to America, to New Mexico, and um, I spent a week living with them and was a guest speaker at a conference. And I learned so much from them, which I 
in danger of boring you with now because it means so much to me. But at the end of this conference, they gave me this bowl that they had made for me, and it's got carvings on with the messages that they wanted to pass on to me. So I brought this bowl home. And what I learned from them as I was with them was here was an oppressed people, alcoholism through the roof, kids dropping out of school all of the time, drugs a massive problem, suicide a massive problem, breakdown in families and relationships a huge problem. I sat in a hut and I listened to a chaplain to the Navajo telling me the story of what gets baked into you when you're not heard and not seen and not understood. Subsequently, I've had the opportunity of working and going to, uh, working in and going to New Zealand. And the people from the islands of the Pacific, they call them Pacificos, struggle with exactly the same thing. And as, as Kessa was speaking about Black History Month and it not just being a month, you listen again to that oppression that's been there, perhaps unnoticed, but it's real. And as we talked earlier about the oppression of people because of their sexuality or the, their, their gender, or perhaps their disability, this is exactly the same thing, isn't it? All the same thing. So often we learn a narrative and we end up believing a narrative that's far from the truth. I met these guys. I sat with them. I had dinner with them. I heard their stories. And I know their stories haven't been heard for what they are. Winston Churchill said famously, history is written by the victors. He also said, as you know, history will remember me well because I intend to write it. And that's what he did. He wrote the history of the English-speaking peoples. And history's remembered him well because he wrote the history that we believe. History is written by the victors, as Winston said. Now, the reality is that that's also true of the Bible. When we say that the Bible is the inspired word of God, um, the, that it's all inspired with encounters by God, as the New Testament says, Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching. That's true. But each book that makes up this library is given to us through human hands and a human pen. And the stories, the ancient ones, the ones that we're talking about as we talk about Genesis, have been passed on in folklore. You know, they're passed on verbally around campfires. Parents told the stories to their kids and their kids told them to the next generation and the next generation for hundreds of years, we know, before they were ever written down. So Nath asked me this morning uh, to talk about Isaac, Abraham's son, and his wife, Rebecca. Well, if you read all the chapters that are there uh, to base that on, it's chapter 29 to chapter 36. Um, uh, uh, Leanne uh, talked about uh, Sarai and Abraham uh, last week, and we were saying we've got the same problem. It's a giant story. If I, if I talk to you about chapter 29 of Genesis to chapter 36 of Genesis, we'd be here at tea time and you'd all be asleep. But this is the story of, of Isaac 
and, and um, Rebecca, his wife, most of the text is about Isaac. And I like to talk, as, as Leanne said, mostly about Isaac. That's not to be disrespectful to Rebecca at all. But in actual fact, last week, um, uh, last week, uh, uh, Leanne talked to, uh, much about Abraham's two wives, or two of his wives, um, uh, Sarah and, and Hagar. And next week, Nathan is speaking about uh, Jacob and two of his wives, um, uh, which I always think is the original love triangle of the Old Testament. You know, I, I don't know if that's what Nate's going to talk about, but I don't want to encroach on that ground. So I'm going to tell you the story um, just as, as it is. The story of Isaac is the story of Abraham's son. Abraham is, as Nath said a few weeks ago, where the real history of Genesis begins. Everything that comes before is really a parable. They're giant mythical stories to teach us great truths about ourselves. But the hard history, historical text, starts with this man called Abraham and his wife Sarah, who set out uh, because... God says, I'm going to build a great nation out of you. But as you know, because um, Leanne said last week, Abraham reaches the, old, the age of 100 and he still doesn't have a son. And uh, he's panicky. And so he has a, a son by his, his, uh, one of his servants, Hagar. And then he has another son who is Isaac by, um, by his first wife, at Sarah. But Abraham isn't a great dad, as I see it. I know, you, I, forgive me for shocking you if you think I should say, well, Abraham is the founder of Israel. But he has one or two deficiencies, the way I see it, in his parenting style. And um, this actually falls into what... Um, <laughs> And Leanne was given to talk about last week, but she said, I just couldn't talk about it all. And it's really the crossover between the story of Abraham and the story of Isaac, the long-awaited son to Sarah and himself. Because God's promised them that through him, this son, a great nation is going to be built. So Abraham gets it into his head that God has told him to sacrifice his son. And you probably know that Abraham takes Isaac up a mountain, lays him out on some uh, altar, and goes to thrust a knife right through him. The, the, the scenario is intervened, and eventually he doesn't slaughter his son. Though it's not said in Genesis, what is said is that Sarah, the mother, dies very soon after that. But what is said in what's called the Midrash, that is all of the rabbinic texts that were written at the time and, you know, because the Jews write everything down, they all unanimously agree that Sarah dies because of the trauma of her husband trying to sacrifice their son. Now... I know that social services are stretched. <laughs> I know that the threshold is pretty high. 
We know darn well that, that we work with children in this community who we know have really serious needs, but you can't get Lambeth or Southwark to really take it that seriously. But I think even Lambeth would get onto a father who tries to sacrifice his son in the back garden. I put it to you seriously, what does that do to a boy? In our generation, where we're so attuned to trauma and anxiety and fear and worry and what it does to a person internally, what does this do to a boy that his father attempts to murder him because he believes that his God has told him to do it? What does it mean to him that his mother, who loves him, dies? And Jewish tradition records that this is because she cannot recover from the shock of seeing her husband attempt to murder her son. So this is the story of Isaac. Nath said, tell the story. After Sarah dies, Abraham goes on to marry a third woman. It's often said that uh, Abraham had three, uh, two wives, Hagar and Sarah, but he had a third. He took a third wife after Sarah was dead. But then he decided that his son Isaac, you can read all about this in chapter 29 to 36, uh, his son Isaac, as he'd survived and God had spared him, um, even though Abraham had wanted something different, um, as God had spared him, he ought to marry him off. So he's got a servant, um, a, a guy called Eliezer, you can read all about him. And so Abraham says, gives his servant, uh, Eliezer, gives Eliezer a lot, of, a, a lot of jury and says, I want you to go back to my birthplace, where I came from, not here, and find a suitable son, a suitable wife for my son. Go find her and bring her back here. So give her all this jury to get her back here. Uh, but I want you to choose a good one. Go get her. So uh, Eliezer sets off to do this. And on his way, he comes up with this idea that when he gets to the town where Abraham was brought up, he's going to sit there and he's going to sit by a well and he's going to look as though he's very thirsty. And then as a, as a woman comes by to draw water, he's going to say to her, can you draw some water for me? And he says, and if she says, yes, I'll do this, and do you want me to get some water for your camels as well? Because he'd come with various camels and various friends. That is a sure sign that this woman should be the woman to marry Abraham's son. You know, are you following this? Do you, do you see? So we call this, this is the Bible. Do you, do you see? And, and we say, I believe every word in the Bible. We're supposed to examine the Bible. The Bible's a library of texts that are slowly compiled that we're supposed to engage with and think about. Slowly as the moral consciousness of these people rises. Anyway, back to this wife who's chosen on the basis that she, get, she suggests getting some water for some, some, uh, 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 for some camels. She gets hauled back, but she does fall in love with Isaac. And Isaac, going back to this, and Rebecca her name is Rebecca, turn out to have a faithful relationship with each other 
to each other's deaths. They're the only, Abraham has three wives, Jacob, his son who we're talking about, has four wives. Um, But this couple stick together. They marry one another and they love one another. The problem is they can't have children. And for 20 years, they struggle with this. Isaac knows that he's supposed to be the successor to Abraham and through him and through uh, Rebekah, he's supposed to come this great nation. They both know that. They struggle with it. He's traumatized already by all sorts of other things. They know this is their job. But they have no kids. 20 years later, Rebecca falls pregnant. She has twins. They call the first boy, the oldest twin, the oldest by a couple of minutes, uh, Esau, which means, which means tough and hairy. That's what the name means. It means fully developed. And then a second child is born, who is called Jacob. And Jacob means um, heel clutcher, leg holder. And it's said that he actually came out of Rebecca's womb clutching at the heel of his older brother. As the years go by, stuff doesn't go well for them. And these two brothers don't like one another. And Jacob, though he's the younger, he wishes he was the older and he wants to inherit all of his father's stuff. So he wants what's called the blessing because in that culture at the time, the oldest son, it was always the son, never the daughter, and it was never the younger son, it was always the oldest son, got a giant share of the property. There was no equality in handing uh, things out. No kids were fighting over whether they were going to get the vase from the Navajo Indians or not. Basically, it all went to the oldest. And Jacob wanted this stuff. And the two brothers fall out with each other through the years. And I won't tell you the story about how they fight and how Jacob tricks his brother into giving up his inheritance, and how at the end of the story, when Jacob is an old man, he's almost blind, and how at that moment, uh, Jacob tricks him into giving the blessing and the inheritance and basically the vast contents of the will to him rather than to Esau, the older brother who... who who should, it should have gone his way. Suffice to say this, this little diagram, found it online, it's not mine. Abraham had two sons, uh, two, he had many more, as I've just shown you, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael by Hagar and Isaac by Sarah. Isaac um, and Re- Rebekah had two sons, Esau and Jacob. The enmity and the dysfunction in these families is what gave way to the rise of both uh, uh, Israel and the Jewish nation and the Arab nation. So the dysfunctionality of this household still impacts you every day when you try to go to a secure area, when you try to get on a plane, as the 
police control, uh, patrol, not control, patrol the streets with semi-automatic weapons. The dysfunctionality in this family that and the competition gave way to so much that's broken in our world today. These stories are told not just in the Bible, but they are, they are, they are told in the Muslim uh, tradition. They're told in the Quran. This is history, and this is how it came about. Isaac's life was a stormy one. Here's the interesting thing, then we move on. Do you know what Isaac means? I told you about uh, uh, Jacob and Esau. Do you know what Isaac means? Literally, look it up, it means he laughs. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And he, he, and he, gave, to, uh, he gave to his son this name, he laughs. And the question that the Jewish scholars asked from that moment on was this. Who was it that laughed? Was it God's laughter because a son had come and a nation could be born? Was it Abraham's laughter because he had become a father? Or was it Isaac's laughter because he was the inheritor of this promise and all of this good stuff? And he was the inheritor of this promise and all of this good stuff. And here we are, all these centuries and millennia later, talking about him on a Sunday morning in South London. But he was also someone who bore trauma and dealt trauma. And out of the dysfunctionality of what happened, as well as coming joy, came pain. We are all in a storm. And the storm over these last 18 months or more has been COVID. And it's really funny, isn't it, as we begin to meet together again and as, you know, from next week we get, we're going to have, um, uh, you know, there's more and more of us here and next week we're going to have coffee through there. We just crack on and move on. You know, oh, that was last year, that was COVID. Now, hey, except for the occasional mask, etc., etc., things are back to normal and here we go. But the reality is, as I look at you all, and you look at me, we don't know the stories of each other's trauma. You know, as part of our church, because we're so mission-orientated, we are constantly, and rightly saying, how do we serve the community? You can volunteer to get involved in this. Why don't we do this? Why don't we give it a go at that? And it's extraordinary through the pandemic and, of course, before, the level of care that has been provided to so many people in this community because of this congregation. It's just absolutely incredible. In fact, because we've not been meeting so much, you wouldn't have seen some of the newspaper coverage that we've got as people have come and asked questions about how do you do this? How does a community mobilise itself in this way to achieve so much? That's a wonderful thing. But the reality is that the toll on us of the pandemic is huge. And as we look around, we don't all have the same sto story. We've all been caught in this same storm, as the saying now goes, but we've been in different boats. And some of us don't feel like we've had a boat at all. Some of us feel that we're sinking or have sunk. 
And some of us in this room have lost people that we love during and through this pandemic. Cornelia and I went last Monday to uh, lay uh, Cornelia's mum's ashes to rest. She died at the beginning of the pandemic, but this was the first opportunity we had to do this and to honour her, to whom we owe so much, so much, to whom I owe so much. If we could go around this room, we'd all have our stories of struggle to tell. We'd all have our stories of worry and trauma to tell. The fears that we have in our relationships, in our finances, in our housing, in terms of our health. So much has been worsened and magnified by the pandemic. It's a struggle. The Bible is realistic. The problem is that as the story gets passed on, as I was saying before, it becomes binary. Cowboys and Indians, written by the winners of history. If you read the theologians, they will tell you this, that these ancient stories were passed on verbally, and as they became written down generations later, those generations overlaid the stories with their own political concerns and worries and issues. So you have to dig deeper into the story. I don't suppose you've ever listened to a sermon about Abraham and the sacrifice, the intended sacrifice of Isaac, and heard someone say, and if he did it today, he'd be locked up. Because what happens is some of the immaturity that's contained in the story and faithfully recorded is somehow airbrushed out. Here is a very famous violinist. Although, I, was, I showed this picture to Flick earlier, and she said she'd not heard of him, but truly he is a great violinist. His name is Yixak Perlman. Um, uh, Perlman, he's, he's in his late 70s now. Um, and this is him playing. Perlman is one of the greatest living uh, violinists and uh, just look him up online, Google's free, find out all about him. Well, here's the thing about Yixak Perlman. You can't see it from that picture, but you can from this. At the age of four, he had polio and was crippled by it. And ever since, he's walked with two crutches that you see beside him there and braces on his legs. But he insists always that he walks on stage rather than when he performs with an orchestra that he's he's already there. So as first violinist, he will always walk on stage painfully and slowly. It was in 1995, if we got the year right, in the Avery Fisher Hall in the Lincoln Centre, which is in New York, as some of you will know, that he was performing. And on that night, he walked on stage. People have paid hundreds, thousands to hear him play. So the anticipation is huge. And as ever, they say, that he walked across the stage slowly with his crutches, painfully, 
and he sat himself down. What he would then do is put his crutches down on the floor one by one and then he'd unbolt the, uh, the nut at the knee joint on his braces so he could bend his legs and he'd always bend one leg with his hand backwards and the other leg forwards and then he'd pick up his violin and on that night he did what he always did he picked up his violin to begin to play a couple of bars through his music an extraordinary thing happened one of his strings broke and it broke with a real twang that echoed around the auditorium there was a long silence Perlman they say looked down at the broken string. Then he looked up at the audience and everyone waited. Would he bolt back on the braces? Would he struggle back up onto his crutches? Would he head off to find a new string or a, a, or a, a different violin? Because he was fiercely independent. But he looked at the audience then he closed his eyes and he paused. Then he opened his eyes and he pointed with his bow at the conductor and beckoned him to begin again. And they say that on that night he reinvented the piece of music on three strings. He refingered the whole thing as he went. It was absolutely incredible. And the audience, the New York audience, sophisticated as they were, realized that they were witnessing something that would only ever take place once. And as he finished, they rose to their feet, cheering. He slowly calmed them, and he waved his bow to do so. And still sat on his chair, he said this. You know, sometimes it's the artist's task to find out how much music you can still make with what you have left. The reality is we're all caught in a storm of life. The COVID storm, the storm of life. There's a great story to be written about your life and there's a painful story. I was reflecting on my life just just this morning, actually, I can tell, you know, people sit me down. Do they say this to you? They say, how's it all going, Steve? And I've got a choice, haven't I? I can either tell them the, wow, it's going really well story, which is true. Or I can tell them the, ah, oh, it's going really badly story, which is true. Does that make sense to you? Because we're caught between these two narratives and sometimes one overwhelms the other. And sometimes we're on the top of the world and sometimes we're in despair. And that will happen to some of you this week and probably me and some of you right now. We are in this storm. And the story of Isaac and of Rebecca 
is slowly through all the trauma that they face as a couple and as Isaac faces as a boy growing into a man and losing his mother because she, she collapses and dies after his father with a very different parenting style has tried to sacrifice him to a deity. This man plays as well as he can on what he has left. That is hope. Jesus said to you, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Do you know do not be afraid is the most repeated command or instruction in the whole Bible. You probably know that. Who are the only people you tell not to be afraid? people who are afraid, people who can be overwhelmed, people who've perhaps only got one string left to play on. And Jesus says, I send you my spirit to equip you to live in hope. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for these stories, these ancient stories that have been overlaid in so many ways with so many agendas. But their truth, their basic truth of the struggle of life for those who brought so much to others still comes through. In our struggle, in our crisis, be with us. We pray for each other peace. We don't know each other's stories, each other's fears, each other's anxieties. But we ask for each that through the words of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus, which fills our lives, that we will have the audacity to play the audacity to play with what remains. Be with us, each one of us. And for you, I pray that you may know God's spirit in your life. Life isn't a struggle to live for God. What Jesus is saying is, I come to you to be with you. Receive again God's blessing that you may live with an audacity of hope from the source of God's love for you and your surrender to God.